Good morning. I am excited about what we're going to be looking at today. I appreciate getting to kind of lead through this series the last few weeks as we've looked at some different passages of moments that were recorded for us of times that Jesus said something that changed people's view, that made things safe for people. I'm excited that we're going to be doing something different next week, which we'll tell you about at the end. But for today, I'm really thrilled for this. And I wanted just to pause for a moment and give you a chance to breathe and to welcome Christ. Um, it can be easy, in a, even in a worship service, for us just to put the words up that we're asking you to sing or to share the words that we prepared, but, but worship is also about us speaking back to God. And I'm just going to give you a moment to, to maybe close your eyes with me. And take a deep breath. What does it look like in this moment for you to welcome Christ? Is there something just in the pause of this brief moment that you want to say to him? Maybe there's something you want to ask or bring to him or give to him. Maybe you don't have something that you want to say right now, but you are just opening your heart to him to receive from him whatever he may have for you this morning. We welcome you, Jesus. Amen. Palm Sunday a few weeks ago, I was standing at the door after church with this sweet couple in our church, and uh, their son was running around hitting other people with a palm frond, which I believe has happened every Palm Sunday ever, including the very first Sunday that Jesus walked into, came into Jerusalem. I have this vision that Jesus is on this donkey, people are chanting his name, he's coming into the city, and he looks over and there are two kids hitting one another with palm fronds and an embarrassed parent trying to stop them. One of the parents this Sunday said to their kid, hey honey, maybe we shouldn't hit people with palm fronds. And the little boy said, but Jesus thinks it's funny. <laughs> it's hard to argue with that because I believe Jesus does think that's funny. It made me think sometimes I wonder if kids understand Jesus better than some of us adults do. They see what we don't see. They accept what we overlook. They believe and they wonder. Kids have an openness to the world around them. They wave at garbage trucks. They let puppies just lick them right on the face. They imagine their tree outside is a rebel base and they send in stormtroopers. They forgive moms and dads who are sometimes less than kind. They believe stories about fish that swallow prophets and seas that split into two and men that walk on water and tombs that open up empty. But kids grow up and sometimes their hearts get old. How do you remember Rich Mullins? Do you remember him? What a loss to lose that poet, Troubadour. He used to sing these words. I've gone so far from my home I've seen the world and I have known so many secrets I wish 
Now I did not know. They have crept into my heart. They have left it cold and dark, bleeding and falling apart. We are children no more. We have sinned and grown old. I'm coming to believe that maybe it is a sin to grow old. Not to age, not to mature, but to grow old in our hearts, to become bitter, to become cynical, to lose our wonder. I think there is a sin of cynicism. And I've discovered that the older that you get, the easier it is to become cynical. As one guy noted, cynicism didn't start, doesn't start because you don't care. It starts because you did care. You cared about something and you got hurt by it. Or you know something now that you didn't know before. Did you know that Solomon, this wise man, wrote this once in Ecclesiastes, in the beginning chapter, he said this, The greater my wisdom, the greater my grief. To increase my knowledge only increases my sorrow. Or maybe you get older in the way that you, you start to think, well, I've got it all figured out. I've got it all set. You stop asking questions. You stop being curious. You stop listening to new ideas. Or maybe you just look at the news feed and just this, feel this avalanche of anxiety. And so what we do is we begin to lock our doors. We begin to cross our arms. We begin to shake our heads and slowly become the sourest of all things, an old-hearted cynic. I've been noticing this. Have you noticed this? There doesn't seem to be balanced older people. Not people who some days have good days and some days have bad days, but people it just seems that they either have a good life or they don't have a good life. They have a bad life. And I think along the way, they got cynical and they couldn't get out of it. But here's the thing. Life doesn't make you cynical. You make you cynical. You make you cynical when you allow your heart to get old. But I want to share some good news with you this morning from Jesus Christ. I believe there's an antidote that we can take to avoid cynicism and even to cure cynicism. And what I want to do this morning is I want to take you to two moments in Jesus' life, one at the beginning of his ministry and one towards the end of his ministry. And in these two moments, I want you to see where he easily could have succumbed to cynicism and yet how he seemed to avoid it. The first moment is going to happen in Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 4, if you want to turn there with me, uh, it's the beginning time of Jesus' ministry. He's about to go public, and we find in about verse 14, Jesus coming back home. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Word about him went out throughout the whole district. He taught in their synagogues. He gained a great reputation all around. He came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. On the Sabbath, as was his regular practice, he went into the synagogue and he stood up to read. So they had a signed reading they were going to do that day. And since Jesus, this traveling guest, rabbi, home, for, you know, home from his travels, they decided, oh, Jesus would be great if you got up and read the reading today. Thank you, I'd be happy to. They gave him the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. We have that book, Isaiah. He unrolled the scroll and he found the place where it was written. And this is what he read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to tell the poor the good news. He has sent me to announce release to the prisoners, sight to the blind, to set the wounded victims free, to announce the year of God's special favor. 
Now, Jesus is reading here from what we would call, we've marked it out, Isaiah 61. It's a prophetic hope that these Jewish people listening had been holding on to in their families for centuries. The Jewish people have always been a people needing this message, needing this rescue. Whether it was slavery in Egypt or captivity in Babylon or even at this very moment living in Roman-occupied territory where every hill seems to hold an executioner's cross for Jewish people who got out of line. When the Jews would hear this, they would hear it as if they were the poor robbed of their land. They were the prisoners not free to practice faith. They were the blind unable to see God's plans for them. They were the wounded victims needing God's special favor. And so Isaiah 61 was this powerful, encouraging message to them. It's a promise from God to his people that things will not always be this way. There is a Savior, there is a Messiah who's going to rescue them. Evil will lose, the land will be returned, all will be well. God's special favor for God's special people. Verse 20, he rolled up the scroll, gave it to the attendant, sat down. All eyes in the synagogue were fixed on him. Today he began, this scripture is fulfilled in your own hearing. Hmm. Everyone remarked at him. They were astonished at the words coming out of his mouth. Words of sheer grace. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? After the service, Jesus is in the back of the synagogue shaking hands. Good to see you. Good to see you. People are saying, great sermon. I loved it. And also, I love, wait a minute. Wait, aren't you Joseph's son? Ralph, get over here. Get over here. This is Joseph's son. He doesn't look like him. I know that's weird. He must take after Mary. Anyways, Jesus, I just, again, I especially loved your message. And I especially love that part where you talked about God's special favor coming for us. That was my favorite part. And then Jesus says this odd and totally random thing. You know, there were plenty of widows in Israel in the time of Elijah when heaven was shut up for three years and six months and there was a great famine over all the land. Elijah, though, was not sent to any of them. He was only sent to this widow in the Sidonian town of Zarephath. Who's talking about this? And also, you know, there were plenty of people with violent skin diseases in Israel at the time of Elisha, the prophet. None of them were healed, only Naaman, who was a Syrian. Okay, well, I don't know what's going on here. Maybe this is Jesus' benediction. I, I, he's saying to people as they leave, he just says this stuff. And it doesn't make a lot of sense to us, but, but how did the people back then receive these words? Verse 28, when they heard this, everyone in the synagogue flew into a rage. They got up and threw him out of town. They took him off to the top of a mountain on which their town was built, meaning to fling him off. But he slipped through the middle of them and went away. What is happening? Five minutes ago, they're clapping him on the back. Great job. Oh, Joseph must be so proud of you. We love you. And now they want to kill him by throwing him off a mountain. What did he say? I mean, all Jesus did was mention two prophets of God, two kind of mini messiahs, Elijah and Elisha. And he reminded people that during times of rescue, God didn't send these people to rescue them, the Jewish people, but to rescue non-Jewish people. A Gentile woman from Sidon, which if you were here the last couple of weeks, we kind of talked about how that was the wrong side of the tracks. And a Gentile man from Syria, both of these people were outsiders. Both of these people were oppressors. Both of these people were the bad guys. 
What would make people so angry is this. Jesus is suggesting that the gospel is bigger than they expected. They thought the Messiah that was being talked about in Isaiah 61 was going to come to bless them. But Jesus is saying people are going to get into the kingdom that you don't expect, that you don't think deserve it, and to be honest, that you don't want to see there. I don't know if you remember a few weeks ago I shared that study, that neurological uh, study they had done where um, the pleasure centers of people's brains are activated when they, they encounter facts or opinions that align with what they already believe and how the fight or flight, the fear act centers of our brain are activated when people encounter facts or opinions that conflict with what they already believe. That's what's happening right here. This crowd believed the gospel was one thing, and when they heard someone say it was something else, they wanted to kill him. When people hear a gospel different than the one they like, they get enraged. Now, I have preached many sermons in my life. I've had people angry with things that I've said, but no mob has ever grabbed me and take me to the top of Pulpit Rock to throw me off. And in the first service, this woman goes, yet... I'm assuming she was joking. <laughs> but if I were Jesus in this moment, I, my cynicism would be activated. Uh, Jesus, he just read the most epic description of the kingdom in history, and he just announced that it was starting right now. And when people thought it was going to benefit them, oh, they loved it. But the moment Jesus showed them a gospel that was wider and broader and deeper and farther than they could imagine, the minute he said, this table has more seats than you think it ought to, and wanted to kill him. If you were Jesus, when you just want to throw in the towel, maybe be so frustrated. Say, you know, God, I know you made that promise about the flood, but maybe let's revisit that and just, just wipe people out. But we don't see Jesus do that. How does he fight cynicism? We could turn to so many passages where Jesus is frustrated with his followers, with the dickering of his disciples about how slow people were to grasp what he was talking about. And he, he often got frustrated. He often got burdened. He never got bitter. How? And how do we? Well, I think a little bit later in Luke, in fact, in Luke, Luke chapter 18, towards kind of the, the, the ending of his ministry here, there's a brief conversation, I think, that gives us the antidote. Jesus says something in Luke chapter 18, and what he do, he's doing is he's teaching some parables about pride. He's teaching some parables about prayer. And this crowd of adults were all listening to him. It was a very nice civil moment he's teaching. But then in verse 16, this happens. People were bringing even tiny babies to Jesus for him to touch them. When the disciples saw it, they forbade them sternly, get those kids out of here. Kids were coming to Jesus. Maybe mom and dad wanted a little blessing for little junior. Maybe little ones wanted to see him up close. I, I even have this image of maybe a, a, of kids daring one another. Will you run up and go touch him? Oh God. And they touch him and run off. And it was just kind of this festival of time. But the adults thought it was improper. These kids are interrupting. Someone has to do something. Someone needs to control some access here. You know what Jesus said in verse 15. But Jesus called them, let the children come to me. Don't stop them. God's kingdom belongs to the likes of these. Jesus rebukes the adults here. He says, let the kids can come to me. In fact, kids ought to come for me. In fact, my kingdom is for kids. Adults, you need to stop gatekeeping who gets to come. 
But then he says something that goes even further, and it's kind of odd. He says, I'm telling you this truth. Anyone who doesn't receive God's kingdom like a child will never get into it. So not only do kids get to come into the kingdom, but only kids get to come into the kingdom. Or at least people who come into the kingdom like a kid. What does it mean to come into the kingdom like a kid? On one level, I think Jesus is saying that to enter the kingdom, we have to be willing to see that we can't enter it on our own power. We must depend on someone else to to give it to us. We must be humble enough to admit that we are needy and helpless, just like a, a child is in many ways needy and helpless. But on another level, I think Jesus is giving us the antidote to old hearted cynicism. Jesus makes it safe for us to keep being kids in his kingdom, to fight the aging of our souls, to stay wide-eyed at the gospel, to admit what we don't know, to tell the truth about who we are, to stay curious, to wonder. Jesus makes it safe to be kids again. I'm turning 50 next year. I thought there'd be more gasps and and shock. Uh, No, I really am turning 50 next year, or as Coach Barry Switzer calls it, half a hundred. Half a hundred. And I've been reflecting a lot over this last year on how I can stay being a kid in the kingdom. How do I not give in to the cynicism that seems to creep in? Let me share what I'm practicing I'm going back to Luke chapter 4, and I want you to hear these words again from Jesus. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to tell the poor the good news. He has sent me to announce release to the prisoners and sight to the blind, to set the wounded victims free, to announce the year of God's special favor into a dangerous, dirty decadent planet like ours, where ugliness reigns in every heart and around every corner, Jesus is announcing beauty. Beauty for those in poverty. This good news of provision where debts are canceled, where food appears on tables, where broken windows get replaced, where underpass pallets are turned into real beds, where sons and daughters have a better chance than mom and dad did. It's beauty for prisoners where people who are trapped in mental illness or addiction or abuse will find release, where people enslaved to sin will find forgiveness. Beauty for those who are blind, who are hurting and hindered from flourishing, diseases that destroy, even death itself will reverse. People blinded by it all will find sight and begin to walk again, will begin to work, be able to contribute And beauty for wounded victims. Systems that oppress people will start to be dismantled. Refugees will become extinct. There will be no more fleeing because people will be free. And the powerful won't win anymore. And justice will be in the hands of the ordinary. This is the announcement of God's special favor. It's an announcement of beauty. And Jesus says, this beauty has begun in me. Now. And he walked out the door that day, chased out, but he immediately began to do some of these things, and yet he left them undone, promising, I will come back one day and finish the job. But in the meantime, he's invited us to continue his work. This is something important to grasp about salvation. It is not only individual, it is an invitational. 
When we come to faith in Christ, we are invited by Jesus to partner with him in this. We get to bring shalom everywhere we step. We get to love the person God puts right in front of us. We get to tell people about Christ. We get to be dealers of hope and bringers of beauty. Beauty is not just something we look at, but we get to bring with Jesus, and that keeps us young at heart. And that lets us into the kingdom. At this point in my life, I am more in love with the beauty of Jesus Christ than I ever have been before. There were times in my life when I was more centered on uh, loving the Bible, or I was more centered on loving a theological system, or I was more centered on loving how to lead a church, but now it's just Jesus. And I want to give some of you that are younger than me, who aren't half a hundred, I want to give you hope. Please listen to this. If you focus on a church or a person or a political party or an affiliation, 100% guarantee they will fail you and you will become cynical. But I also want to tell you this. If you focus on Jesus, it's probably 100% guarantee that there will come a time in your life where you feel like he has failed you. Fight through that. Keep looking to him. Because unlike that person or that church or that political party or that affiliation, the difference is Jesus is the beauty that will save the world. Now let me unpack that statement for a minute. Back in Isaiah, the book that Jesus was reading from, the prophet was predicting the arrival of the Messiah, and the prophet Isaiah says this is what he's going to be like. He has no former majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. I used to always read that and think, well, I guess they're saying that Jesus is going to be ugly. Like he was an ugly person. Like you look at him, oh, you're just horrendous to look at. I used to think that's what it meant. I don't think it means that. I think it means that Jesus would become the ugly for us. That on the cross, Jesus took all the ugly of all the people of all the time and he became it. And this ugliness that he became only reminds us that our story of history is rooted in beauty and will end in beauty. If you go back to Genesis chapter 1, as God is creating everything, he says, and this was good, and this was good, and this was good. And that word good doesn't mean average or acceptable. Like, well, that'll do. That's good. That's okay. What that word good means in Genesis is beautiful. God is saying, this is beautiful, and this is beautiful. That's how it began. And when we look towards the end of the story in the book of Revelation, John describes the way that the story is going to end and begin again. He says, I saw no temple in the city because the Lord God, the Almighty, is its temple together with the Lamb. Who is the Lamb? Who is it? Listen to what he says. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the Lamb. The lamp is the lamb. I don't understand what that looks like, but his beauty is so great that it lights up a city. This is what it looks like when the beauty of God is going to be re-unleashed on us. What draws us to this is the same thing that draws us to a great artwork or to the Grand Canyon or to a Rocky Mountain sunrise. We were created for beauty. Beauty stirs us towards the transcendent. It reminds us of what is true with a capital T. This is how a man can say to his wife on their 50th anniversary, you are more beautiful than ever. Because it's true. 
and it's transcendent. But what we have to capture is this. The engine driving this beauty is something ugly, the cross. The cross has no beauty in it. It is a cruel instrument of torture. It is designed by the ugliest parts of who we are. It has no more inherent beauty than a guillotine or an electric chair. But when we understand that this mission of Christ in Luke chapter 4 and the result of it that we're working towards and looking towards in Revelation 21 were accomplished by the cross, then beauty will save the world. So how am I keeping this wonder alive in my heart? Let me just share what I am doing, and, and maybe there's a different way that it would look like for you. There's a Russian novelist called Dostoevsky who wrote a novel called The Idiot. I was intrigued by that title, and so I picked it up and read it. The title refers to this central character, this guy named Prince Mishkin. Prince Mishkin is a young man whose goodness and innocence and open-heartedness makes everyone think that he's a fool. He's, he's, look at how he looks at life. He's just a fool. But out of his mouth comes profundity. At one point in the novel, Prince Mishkin sees this real painting depicting Christ in the tomb. It's a painting by Hans the Younger. That's a gruesome painting. That's an ugly painting. It's brutal. It's so overpowering that... Upon looking at this, Prince Mishkin says, looking at this painting might cause one to lose his faith. Later in the novel, though, he utters these words, beauty will save the world. It's something that Dostoevsky uh, believed, uh, it was kind of rooted in his view of life. And, and what you're seeing here is in Christ's death, in his ugly, there is the beauty that every heart longs for. And so I stay young in the wonder that beauty will save the world because nothing is more beautiful than the person and work of Jesus Christ to me and also through me. Now I forget that a lot. Sometimes I forget that and I steer towards cynicism or I start to go negative. I'm not good when I'm negative. I'm good when I'm talking about the beauty of Christ. And so I try to remind myself of that. And the, the, the one way that we figured out how to do that was uh, a few months ago, Jessica and I went and I got this on my arm. So I would remember that beauty will save the world. It was a coincidence that all of our children were out of town for a week and we just were kind of a little giddy. Uh, I need a daily reminder of the beauty of Christ. I need a constant reconnection to the saving presence of Jesus in this world and me as his hands and feet. And I need to be reminded that I am at my best when I am pointing people towards true beauty. This keeps me from cynicism. It keeps me growing young, and it keeps me being a kid in the kingdom. And it helps me understand that Jesus loves me more than I love him, which allows me to love people more than they love me. Where has your heart grown old? Where have you let maybe some hurts or some dashed hopes or Maybe even some betrayals turn you cynical. What is the wonder that you need to embrace to keep being a kid in the kingdom? How can you rediscover Christ, the beauty that will save the world? Let's take some of those questions to Christ right now. Will you, will you pray with me?
Jesus, we often let our eyes drift from you to all that is happening. And sometimes that this world and all that's in it is just so lacking in wonder. Will you keep us centered in your story, in you becoming the ugly, to bring the great beauty that will save the world? We open up to you right now parts of our heart that have grown old, and we ask, can you heal? Can you renew? Can you resupply us with a sense of wonder and hope? Can you allow us to see your beauty at work even in the darkest of places? Jesus, we look to you.